Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Nicholas Mutz-Alsop about fertility astrology and the process of using astrology in order to help with conception and uh, having a child. So welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's fantastic to be here. Yeah. Um, so you were here for the International Society for Astrological Research Conference. It's happening in uh, Colorado just later this week, right? Yes. Okay. And we almost did this interview actually last time I was in London in 2019, but we just barely, I think, didn't didn't cross paths. But I've been meaning to since you published your book uh, titled Fertility Astrology um, in 2017, right? Yeah. Or 2018? I think the book came out in 20, earlier, 2016. No? Okay. But yeah, it was, it was at the conference that we met, I think, in 2018. Right. In America. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, great. Well, I'm excited about this topic. This is a topic that is actually a very big topic, um, and it's something that you've come to specialize in, but you actually started uh, initially doing it as part of your early consultations, but then eventually it became actually like a personal um, thing for you yourself that you ended up applying to your own life, right? It, it did. I, I must admit it started off... Um, it started off... Uh, with one case, the first case, Amanda, where I made a very wild and naive prediction in my very early career, basically hadn't really started practicing. And when you get something, uh, a prediction that is so right and so, so perfect, it actually, it really scared the bejesus out of me. Mm. I thought, what is this astrology? And this is really, um, it was almost too much too soon. So I um, I spent a lot of time unpacking that chart to find out what exactly was it that um, that made me say that. And following Amanda's prediction in 2003, there were seven other pregnancies that are predicted to the date um, in 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 the the next six months. So it was it was almost as if fertility astrology chose me and not the other way around. Mm. And I then decided to focus all of my efforts on finding material that I could use for, for that. Because of course, then all the, the people who were suffering had heard about Amanda's story and they all came to me. And back in the day, and let's just remember that 2003 is quite some time ago now, there, um, there was very little in traditional uh, writings, um, astrological writings. There was virtually nothing. I had to, um, I had to be a member of the Real Astrology Yahoo group, um, and the other one was, gosh, I can't remember the name. But anyway, there was an it was a John Frawley split off group, and those were the days when we had Bbar Bbar internet, and you had to ask your question, post your chart, but you would have had to have done some work yourself. And then you'd have to wait a whole day for people to reply to your email. Mm. And then you'd have a conversation about your chart. And uh, like I said, in the absence of um, all the, um, the Schmidt Project Hindsight material, because that hadn't been finished or published yet, and in the absence of uh, you know a lot of other um, um, Ben Dyke's work, you know all, everything that's come out now, it was really like... Um, uh, it, very difficult to find um, those older texts that could give you some kind of basis for my, my kind of astrology that I wanted to practice. Mm. Um, I did find uh, the speaker publications, um, the Liber Hermetis, um, the, no, yeah, the Liber Hermetis, um, the, I think Robert Hand was involved with a translation of Aetius Valens, Dorotheus of Sidon, 
they all came out through speaker publication and they were they were most helpful and I actually start started there. That's where I, I started my research. Okay. So the initial entryway for you was making a successful prediction about somebody having a child and then realizing that that was possible essentially. Yes. As well as several people having a child. And then eventually um, clients started coming to you with a, a actual problem where they were having problems conceiving or wanting to get advice for what the best times would be in order to attempt to have children? Well, both. You know, I, and we, we didn't realize it at the time, and I suppose it's quite apparent now, but, you know, one in six couples has trouble with inf infertility. So regardless of what kind of astrology you practice, one in six couples in your practice is going to ask you the question one day, you know, be really struggling to have children. Can you tell me when I'm going to have them? Right. That's a huge number, one in six. It is. It's it's, it's startling. So, um so yes, yeah, so that's where that's where it started. And I think Cape Town, where, where I was practicing at the time, is a relatively small place. And I think once word got out about that, obviously I had all the people who couldn't get pregnant, and part of their um, their their uh, how can I say their consult with me was to talk that people who are struggling with infertility they find the need to to explain a lot and to to tell the story, and so. There was a lot of note taking in, in those days and a lot of um, medical histories. I mean, there are a few components to fertility that I started comparing to you know, actual sort of astrology myths, if you like, or actual astrology signatures. So I realized pretty early on that, okay, in the woman's charts, we need hormones. We need a uterus. We need eggs. And that basically... And um, and the ascendant will tell you what the the uterus is like because it's the ship that you sail in. It's the it's a physical body, and the the moon will tell you the quantity of eggs, the quality of eggs through the aspects of the moon, and um, and the hormones are going to be any negative aspect or positive aspects um, from Neptune, and how does that? And sometimes to Venus. So we get a moon. Venus can also be a hormonal thing. So. I listened to all their stories. I started tracking all of their um, their complaints, and I and using the, the the symbolism in astrology that I already knew, I kind of worked out. Okay, so these these people with Moon Neptune or Moon Venus, I'm going to maybe go with thyroid or endocrine problems. If the moon is ruled by Saturn conjunct Saturn, I'm going to go with lower ovarian reserve. And so I started building up a database, if you like, of anecdotal. Um, evidence, for want of a better word, and and then I would also talk them through the the psychological aspect of that. So for me, it wasn't just about you've got Moon conjunct Saturn, so you don't you have low ovarian reserve. I would want to talk to them about now. Interesting, the Libra Hermeta starts off with if you have Moon conjunct Saturn, then your mother is a slave. So just using that sort of that's where I started, and I'm going okay. Now how can I reinterpret this into 2003 how can I make this useful so then I'd go okay so my my rejig of that was to say well it seems to me that you carry with you the narrative of not enough so if we if we just concentrate there you don't I'd say to people you don't feel like you have enough time you don't feel like you have enough money you don't feel like you have enough of emotional resource in order to do the things that you want to do so even if you have masses of money you still feel that on some level mm -hmm. and that stomatizes in the physical body and makes the body stingy in the production of eggs because you the eggs are precious there's low ovarian reserve and once people could make that connection they would go oh okay fine so i'm now not going to resist going on clomid or other sort of um 
uh, egg-stimulating drugs because now I realize that this is actually a thing. It's not in my imagination and it's not in the imagination of the doctor. I can resonate with this. I can see how it's um, acting out in my life. So that's just an example of, of, of how we did that. And that's just in the woman's chart. And in the male charts, what I was looking at was Mars is a primary indicator for sperm. And Mars in, in terms of what are the aspects to Mars and the dignity of Mars. So I was looking at things like I noticed that a Mars square Saturn or opposite Saturn is um, men who or people who have um, an issue to do with um, sometimes authority figures, you know, acting as a handbrake and where they feel like they just can't get their energy out because something's always pulling them back. And in terms of my fertility, I went, OK, well, that's a motility problem in sperm. That's when your sperm's going to have like enough sperm, but they're not going to be swimmers for some reason. And that started becoming true. And then I looked at um, moon uh, with hard aspects to Mars in men, and it, that became like a signifier for morphology issues. And what I found really interesting with, uh, with talking to women about their partners with um, sperm issues is that sperm gets reproduced fresh every 72 days. So if you have a chance to change a man's paradigm about his emotional feeling about his Mars or his energy or his possible emasculation issues due to the Mars-Moon conjunctions or hard aspects, you could actually change that fresh part of sperm. And it has happened more than a couple of times in my practice that from one round to the next round of IVF, things have changed dramatically in a sperm test. But it is also, funnily enough, noted by Robert Winston in his book, Infertility, where he told somebody to change their lifestyle, adjust their diet, but also go for therapy or something. And what do you know, the next batch of sperm was was different. And so it's not uncommon and it hasn't been, um, how can I say, it's, it's not been well written up because I think it's um, one of those sort of softer psychological issues that IVF specialists are not focusing on, but it is possible. Okay. Um, let's back up a little bit and just assume listener has no background whatsoever in the topic of like fertility or even having children yeah. and start from square one. So I like that stat you give that one in six people have problems. One of the things you emphasized at the beginning of your book is that for most people, having children is a lifelong aspiration or, or even a career goal, really, um, something about their, their overall um, life direction and sort of destiny that they want to accomplish. And most people have an assumption all the way up until the point they get there that it'll be something relatively easy, that it's just like something you do and then you have children, but that it's not really, it's not supposed to be like a problem, but some people get to that point and then there's a stumbling block for, for various reasons. And there can be a whole host or a whole variety of different reasons that people run into issues. Yeah. Um, wouldn't it be great if you know, all 16-year-olds came to see me and we could map out their fertility then and they could, you know, t take it forward. Um, it's, I think, I think it's it's true that um, the reasons that people want to have children are, are, are varied and I have no judgment on any one of those reasons. Sometimes you'll get um, a newish marriage, but a marriage that is not necessarily working out that well. And the couple predominantly the woman will assume that if we just had a child, things would get better. If we just had a child, he'd be more committed to the relationship. He would, you know, find meaning. He would whatever. Um, and we all know that actually having a child just kind of will highlight the problem in a marriage. It won't actually fix the problem. But that still doesn't stop me from helping somebody having a baby. I'm just noticing that that's one of the reasons. Another reason mm -hmm. is 
financial or security, uh, material security for women. If they have a baby with a man, they, they often figure out that this is a way to at least have um, children that are going to be materially sorted out by someone else. Um, there are people who have uh, children because my mother's dying and she hasn't had a grandchild yet and I'd like to give her a grandchild. They don't necessarily think of the consequences of, well, then the child's going to be yours for the next 21 years. They just want, they're doing it to please the the parent or, and again, it's, I have no judgment. It's, it's these, these are the reasons. And I don't, I don't think that they are, that people logically think about, I want to have children. I think it, one gets in a grip of an emotional um, storm and you suddenly decide for whatever reason now is the time and and you justify it by a whole lot of other reasons but I think it is very um, compelling for women especially because they know that after the age of 36 their fertility drops off a cliff okay and so yeah there's like a timing issue there where yeah. um where for men there isn't before menopause or before what is the like time frame you said is it 36 it's it's is it getting pushed out a little bit more at this point or well medical science is fantastic so so what can happen is that you know you can have um, a baby on your own up until the age of 36 37 people start having problems at 37 particularly with ovarian reserve and with hormone levels so they kind of they're getting into that premenopausal stage but if you're, and the st one statistic is if you are trying to have a baby at the age of 40 or 41, even with IVF, you have a 1% chance of success, even using your own eggs, even using IVF, a 1% chance. So that's very, very small. Wow. Okay. Once, Once you get to 41? Yeah. Okay. So what happens then is that people will decide, okay, having children is a deal breaker for me. I want, I want to be pregnant and I want a live baby in my arms. They will negotiate with the gods, the fates, and the doctors, and they will use donor egg. Now, using donor egg gives you then uh, an extended fertility till the age of about 45. Okay, so the issue is that by 36 and afterwards, there's a lack of eggs from the the mother? Yes. Okay, but then one way around that is to get a donor, donor egg, um, like fertilized and then implanted? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how you can do that up to, what did you say, 40, 45? 45. So some clinics will do up until 50, but it just depends on the clinic. You know, these scientists are very clever. They don't want older women in their clinic because they skew their, their their lovely data. So they don't want to post too many unsuccessful IVFs. So you have to find yourself a doctor who's going to be willing to take you on after the age of 45, which is difficult, but they, they, they are there. But most countries have got a legal cutoff where if you have an embryo that is still sitting in an IVF clinic somewhere at the age of 49, they will ring you up and say, if you don't plan to use this, this embryo, we are destroying it. Mm -hmm. Usually they will ask if they could use it as an embryo share to give it to somebody else. Um, if somebody needs it, usually it's altruistic, there's no money involved. But however, at the age of 49, you will get that call if you have embryos stored somewhere. Okay. And that's interesting timeframes. I mean, I'm trying to think of different planetary transit cycles that coincide with some of this. Like I know the Uranus opposition is famously around 42 or so. Yeah. So we're talking about that time frame roughly as a, as a cutoff. You're also talking about a Neptune square Neptune at 45. Okay. And that, that's the hormonal endocrine change. That's the start of the perimenopause. And that's when the, the endocrine system does kind of break down. Mm. Um. Also, I think you're reaching the end of your Jupiter Fedaria at about 50. Mm, okay. 
So Jupiter as the planet that does bring babies and, and things, I think that's the end of that for Daria. Yeah, I think you said in your book that Jupiter really is one of the primary, especially in terms of transit indicators, things that you pay attention to and try to focus on uh, for possible time frames of having a child. I do. So, but okay. So, not, but also, I must say that nothing, nothing in my fertility work, or not, and like I can't even look at uh, at a solar fire uh, transit um, list without knowing what is our mutant of pregnancy. So for me, that's a fundamental um, tool that I got from Omar of Tiberas, which says, if we're going to ask about pregnancy, there are seven things that go into you getting pregnant. And one is, you know, it's the, your, your physical body. So that's the ruler of the ascendant. But it's also, so, and the, the degree of your ascendant. And then we're going to look at the moon and the position of the moon and the position of Jupiter. So he had seven points that he really looked at in a complicated algorithm, which gave you the unmutant of pregnancy. So that's four. What are the other three? Okay, so it's the ascendant, the ruler of the ascendant, the degree of the ascendant, the ruler of the moon, the degree of the moon, the ruler of the fifth house cusp, the fifth house cusp, Jupiter, and then you have to look and see, is there a planet that is bodily in the fifth house? And they get an extra five points just on top. And then we're using, obviously, five points for rulership, four for exaltation, three for all three triplicities, two for term and one for face. Okay, so your primary access point and one of the unique things that you did with your book and your approach that you developed compared to other approaches because I know you mentioned one earlier uh, fertility astrology book where you weren't crazy about the technique that was proposed yes. there but one of your unique things is um, determining the almutant of pregnancy, pregnancy. Um, from the 8th century 9th century astrologer Omar Tabaras, yeah. Tabari um, and then um, that will help you in order to identify what the primary significators of, of pregnancy are in the person's chart. Yeah. So that so so once you know the unmutant of pregnancy, basically what you're then going to be looking at is how is it placed in the chart by 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 dignity and what is its ability to act and what other aspects to it. So this is where I'm kind of a hybrid where I'm staunchly medieval, but yeah, if that unmutant of pregnancy's got a, a conjunction to Pluto, I'm not going to look askance. <laughs> we we have to we have to like you know look at that and go okay, so th this is an issue. Mm. Um, often the unmutant of pregnancy will be um, conjunct a planet like Uranus, which means for Uranus for me is a planet of IVF. It's it's surgery and innovation and and um, te and advanced techniques, if you like. So. When the mutant of pregnancy is is contacting Uranus by, by by aspect, it's not a bad thing. I'm going okay. So your your the way in which you're going to get pregnant is like this. It's not going to be. Uh, we're not saying it's a no. We're just saying this is the method by which you're going to get pregnant. Sometimes also, if the mutant of pregnancy is in detriment, um, it often indicates that you are going to get pregnant out of the mainstream, according to like a, a Bernadette Brady quote in her medieval course. So it's out of the mainstream, and that can be. You're going to get pregnant with somebody out of wedlock. You could be preg pregnant with somebody out of your tribe or out of your age group or something will be weird and wonderful about how you're going to get pregnant. But it also could be that your pregnancy is going to be or your fertilization is going to be in a Petri dish, which is also out of the norm. Right. So paying attention to that, like you would normally on using your normal regular astrology, you can then rate the ability of that unmutant of pregnancy to perform in the chart. And then, obviously, you would look at, I look at um, perfection, and you want to see that the if the the perfected house is ruled by the unmutant of pregnancy, then you've got a very good chance of getting pregnant that year. 
if you've got a, pro- a perfection, but the unmuted pregnancy is aspecting the ruler of that um, perfection, you've also got a good chance. So it's about l- linking those two now and saying, and if then, and lastly, I always go lastly to transit. What is Jupiter doing? Is Jupiter going to be helping you with that perfection? Is it going to be transiting either the perfection ruler? Is it going to be transiting the unmuted or pregnancy? Is it, wh- what is it going to be doing? And I want to see when I'm writing up my notes. So I just take a small little highlighter and I go, oh, that's a nice little moment, a nice little moment. And then I go these big highlights where the unmuted or pregnancy is. Is, is highlighted by solar arc in a specific way. And you'll see my notes that most people only have two and a half to three times a year that's lucky to conceive. And that kind of is corroborated by the medical fraternity. Um, they also agree that if you put two 20-year-olds in a room and you, they have sex every day, they only have a 15, that's a 1-5% chance of falling pregnant um, in that month. So if I extrapolate that, which I once did with Christian Borup in some weird after party <laughs> um, algorithm we figured out that actually the, the if we're using um, Jupiter you're getting 17% so we were looking at Jupiter to the angles and to the luminaries and you're going to get that so yeah so we think okay three three times a year is when you're going to have a highlight or a, a chance for me the wonderful thing about the unmutant of pregnancy is is that sometimes it's it's Saturn or sometimes it's Mars and that could be like disturbing for somebody when you're talking to them and you say your unmutant of pregnancy is Saturn what it means is that you've actually now just converted one of your malefics into a benefic. Mm. So you've actually halved the ability for the malefics to, to, to rain on your parade and ruin your fertility. Because instead of not wanting Saturn in your fifth house, if the mutant of pregnancy is, is Saturn, you want it all over your fifth house. So what tends to happen with those women is they get double the chances because you now you have Saturn and Jupiter and Venus slightly to, to, to bring the, those pregnancies. Mm. So that's really good. And, and the same with Mars. So that brings up a point. One of the points you focused on in your book is how, um, you know, something needs to be promised usually in the natal chart in order for it to manifest in a person's life. And that not everybody's birth chart is created equal, just as everyone's life is not created equal and different people experience luck or hardship in different parts of their life, which you know, practically, normally speaking, just seems sort of random and chance-like in our lives. But through the lens of astrology, we see that there's some patterns to this. And some of that can be seen in the birth chart, the areas where sometimes people struggle more or run into more challenges versus have greater ease. So um, there's some people, similarly, when it comes to the issue of, of pregnancy and having children, that it's something that comes much more naturally or with ease. And there's other people that do run into issues. And sometimes there's indicators of that in the birth chart itself. There are. And and, and there are traditional ones. It's It'll be, you know, a, a moon, for instance, a moon in a, in a woman's chart that's really besieged and hammered. You know, you, you, you look at that and it's and you go, not only are you battling like a psychological patterning, perhaps, or a, a childhood drama, overlaid on that you now again is has it stomatized in the body and they now have low ovarian reserve is the moon now being aspected by neptune and it has chromosomal integrity issues you know so so there are there are indicators where it's going to be more difficult for other people and sometimes that can be you mentioned in the book sometimes it can be a physical issue that can be an impediment to getting pregnant and other times it can be a psychological issue yeah 
Yeah. Okay. And sometimes, you know, charts are, are very strange things. So it's, I, I'm dealing with two charts mostly. So I'm dealing with a, a, a husband or, or the, another woman, depending on what kind of um, arrangement I'm looking at. But in the partner's chart, you know, we, we don't partner and then want to have children with people randomly. We tend to like have some severe sort of karmic attraction with these people. So sometimes I will see that there is a, there's a terrible um, signature called killer cell. And I hate the term, but it's so colloquial it needs to be said. It's called killer cell. It's basically an immune disorder whereby if the you might get pregnant, but if the but the the fetus might not implant because the woman's body determines that the fetus is a foreign body and then rejects it. The immune system attacks it or the system attacks it. Okay. So so sometimes you'll get a woman who comes to you and she says, I've had three IVFs. We've had grade one embryos every time and my hormones are fine. We keep implanting, nothing happens. And you see that the husband will carry a Neptune square Mars and you go, it's not in her chart, but he's carrying it for her. So between them across those charts, you're going to kind of like see them as one system that they're going to be experiencing coming into contact with or having an issue with autoimmune um, diseases, which could be causing uh, you know, the, the fetus not to implant. The fact that it's not in her chart and she's the one carrying it is immaterial, it seems. Sometimes we get a, like a real crossover. Other times we'll see like a, I'll see like a dead or a dull spot in a woman's chart by transit, but the husband's having like a massive solar arc Venus to his son. And I'll say, do the treatment then. And the treatment works because both people are, 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 are combined. So mm. it's about addressing those charts. But I just wanted to say, you know, also that, Chris, this is the, the problem, I think, with fertility astrology is that we cannot we cannot blindly apply medieval uh, astrology without holding the space that medical science is advancing and is absolutely fantastic in and of its, itself. Mm -hmm. So I'm just thinking that we keep having we we are we have a, a commentary on the quality of time. That's our contribution. Right. They have the the, the ability to do the mechanics and to do the, the, the you know the, that kind of setup. And I think it's it's um it's really important to to leave a bit of space. So it's an and I'll never say never with somebody because you don't know what medical science is going to come up with. We've had uterus transplants. Can you imagine? You could look at somebody and you can say you have no uterus, and five years later they'll come back and say I've had a uterus transplant and a baby. Hmm. it's wow. remarkable what can happen yeah so that's a really important that's a core point is that astro you use astrology and that was a really powerful thing you said in the book was that astrology is like an additional tool but it's not the only tool tool really it's just supposed to be used as something additional on top of every other um medical and psychological and other thing can, that can be done in order to help a person to conceive a child or to have a child. But the one thing that's unique about astrology and the strongest thing that you're able to bring to the table as an astrologer is that astrology is able to address the issue of the quality of time and the better times to do something where success may be more likely, the chances may be more likely versus times in which things might be a little bit more challenging. Exactly. That I think that is like the the best that we can hope for um, using astrology in, in this instance. I also want to add that I think it's really important, you know, couples go through such a lot when they, when they go through IVF. They have to make so many decisions, and these decisions are so expensive. It's 5,000 pounds, I don't know what it is in dollars, to have around one round of IVF. Yeah, and now, okay. I think that's about $5,000 at this point. They're parodies. Uh, and, now, and now you're going to ask a couple who are under severe psychological strain, 
Are you going to ask them to make a decision about when they're going to have their IVF treatment? Now, one of them has, somebody has to take leave from work and somebody's got to be injected for 14 days at a stretch. The investment is great. So somebody chooses the date and then it doesn't work out. Now we've got to go for round number two. Now we've got to choose round number, who's going to choose round number two? There's, whether you like it or not, there's always going to be that sort of sub subliminal blaming and, well, you chose last time and it didn't work out. Whereas I always say, use me as an ombudsman. Blame me if it doesn't work out. Let me choose when you're going to have your cycle and protect your relationship. Hmm. So, yeah, so it's a hugely like financially draining process. It's also hugely emotionally draining on the couple or on, on the mother. Um, and that's one of the things you say in the book is that by the time somebody comes to you, they're usually like at last resort at this point because it's not working. And this has been uh, a hugely trying and, and almost sort of traumatic process that they've been going through in trying to achieve something that's very become very difficult for them quite by surprise or, or like opposite in many instances to their expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else? So you, so the, besides the financial drain, what's involved in the emotional or physical drain? Okay. So, so just, just the process of being um, hormonally stimulated means that for eight days in a row, you have to be injected um, both in your butt and your tummy. And sorry, this conversation can get quite technical no, please. and graphic. And so some couples, they, they choose like a cheaper option, if you like, of IVF, where they, they plan to do the injections at home without going to a clinic, which means often that the husband has to inject the wife, which is traumatic. I mean, who wants to, who wants to be doing that? Right. The injections are not, um, they're not comfortable. Sometimes they're painful. So for a couple of days, two weeks in a row, you're going to be making your wife like, experience pain in order to do this and right it's you're not like a sexy process there's no, <laughs> nothing sexy going on yeah and you're going to see her with bruises and then and then you're going to go to um to to be scanned and then you have to watch a doctor like intravaginally scan her which is really fantastically emasculating and also makes everybody very vulnerable and then they decide, okay, we're going to have more, more of a, um, uh, a stimulation where we're going to try and either hold off um, the, the ovulation in order to fit in with the laboratory scheduled hours because you don't want you ovulating too soon or too late. So you have these wonderful injections right into your stomach, which cause massive bruising. And then, um, and then you finally they'll, they'll call you in for egg retrieval, and then you'll go in and have your eggs retrieved, which again is not comfortable. So. Husbands, like, they battle. They're, they're not only are they paying for this, but they're, they're seeing their wives um, in discomfort and pain. And a lot of men don't have a vocabulary um, to, to deal with that. They, they don't know how to reassure their partners without feeling completely lost and vulnerable. And they're too scared to show emotion in case they completely lose it. And then, you know, they, they don't know what they're going to do with themselves after that. So you see them rather not saying anything at all. And um, the women in the, they are, okay, they, the women tend to be split into two camps. And there are some women who want their husbands to hold their hand through everything. And it's, if I'm going to be in pain, he must be in pain kind of scenario. And then there are the other women who I think are the more strategic. And they're saying, 
don't come to the appointment with me. I'm going on my own or with a girlfriend. And they go and have all the painful injections on their own. And they don't let their husband see that part of them. But their husbands are more likely to pay for a second and a third round of IVF if they haven't been through that painful experience of seeing all that pain and discomfort. Mm, okay. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge dynamic that sure. couples go through. So it's like the, the, the mother is going through like major emotional and physical turmoil, and I'm sure that may be showing up in her transits at that time. So that's something you need to be prepared to understand as an astrologer in terms of what you're seeing or looking at. And then there may also be major tensions in the relationship at the same time for various reasons because of how grueling this whole process is. Exactly. So sometimes when I'm looking at like a transit, my, my transit printouts from solar fire, I will see things like there'll be a Uranus sextile in the ascendant. There'll be a Uranus sextile, maybe the unmutant of pregnancy by transit. I'm going, oh, good. This is this is all good. This is IVF. This is telling me IVF. Medical, uh, technological yeah, in, yeah, invention, yeah. invention or innovation uh, happening. Happening. Yeah. And I might also see Neptune square the ascendant or Neptune active in the chart. I'm going... I'm also, in that particular instance, I'm not using Neptune as a grief marker or as loss or as infection or uh, ever, you know, else Neptune is usually described in other medical situations. Mm -hmm. I'm just going, these are the hormones. These are the hormones that she's taking. This is the stimulation. This is, this is what's happening. So I'm not troubled by Neptune. I'm definitely not troubled by a bit of Saturn square Venus, and I'm definitely not troubled by a, a bit of Pluto square the moon, because Pluto square the moon is what we call, I call it the IVF rape. So when you go and have your your egg transfer, that's what it really feels like. It really feels like um, you come out like you've, you've been punched. So it's it's the, it's those kinds of transits that don't worry me. I like I see that and I go, no, this is this is all part of the story. You see, I'm all about the story. The transits must tell a story. The story must be chronological. So I don't want to see the Neptune before she's starting the IVF. I want to see the Neptune as part of the IVF or after. And so you're following the story. I'll tell you the only thing, the only signature that absolutely terrifies me and that I, I really, really don't like is when we have a Saturn square Neptune or, or, or Neptune square Saturn by solar arc or transit. That is the one thing that really um, bothers me. That is my biggest miscarriage marker. So what I will do is I will advise people to delay their, their implantation so you can have your, your egg retrieval, but then do your implantation after that transit. I also don't like eclipses, so I don't like eclipses in the four weeks after implantation. Something uh, seems to happen. Just as, as an electional issue in general, like avoiding eclipses for the implantation, or does it matter if they're like, for example, eclipses in the fifth house I've seen sometimes be if somebody has children? It's not necessarily even if they're in the fifth house. So so the, the, my kind of, and, and this is where I, I, it's, it's more it's more like a I've just been tracking my, my charts and, and, and it's more like a feeling that I see when people get pregnant, I don't know, say at the, the beginning of September and there's an eclipse in the first week of, of October, then it's at around six to eight weeks that the heartbeat comes in. So you might well get pregnant, but it's kind of now we're stepping into sort of Plato's idea of the soul, that soul is now coming down through the ethers and the, the levels of all the planets, and it's going to be deposited on Earth by the moon, and there's an eclipse. It's almost like the bus where the souls has a crash. For me, it's like there's, there's, there's a, an obstruction to those souls coming in. Sure. So that's one of the other, I guess, things we haven't gotten into yet is that one of the other obstacles to successfully having a child for some people is miscarriages along the way, either 
when they're trying to have children naturally or even during the process of doing IVF? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's about just avoiding. So those are the, the two things I, I avoid is the, the, the Neptune square, um, Saturn and Saturn square Neptune and eclipses too close to to the six to eight weeks when the heartbeat's coming in. I don't mind it if the heartbeat has been in or established for four weeks and then there's an eclipse, that's fine. And it doesn't seem to matter if you do your your implant sort of a week or even days after the eclipse. It's just that eclipse during that time seems to be sensitive in my charts. Okay. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned was like the life narrative because one of the things that you're looking at is you're trying to establish how does this fit into the person's life narrative up to that point and you want to see things that look that seem to fit into what they're hoping for uh, astrologically in terms of the narrative that they want to achieve which is having a successful pregnancy at this point yeah so some of the things that that are really interesting is that women often get like some kind of activity or or something going on in their 10th house or in the 10th house cusp because your 10th house as a woman is your um your social identity if you like so that's reflected in whether you're single or married or or you know your job title if you have a career but um it's it's very much uh those changes get, um get made when when children are arriving so, and also people have to leave their jobs. So often when I see Saturn, for instance, coming to the 10th house, I get quite excited. I go, oh, you're going to lose your job. Fantastic, because that means you, you're losing your job for the reason of pregnancy. So I, I want to be clear that I only focus on the pregnancy. I'm saying if there are other reasons why you could be losing your job, you need to tell me. But if one of them could be that you're going on maternity leave, well, this is good. This is right. telling the story. Giving something up in order to do something else. Yeah. And and. Similarly, things like Pluto on the fourth house or Saturn even on the fourth house, you go, oh, renovations, somebody, you know, applying for permits to increase or are you moving house? Um, Saturn on the ascendant is also um, all those kinds of legal documents like applying for new passports, birth certificates, um, trust funds. All of a sudden, especially with the men, the men get a Saturn to the, to the, to the sun and men get Saturn to the eighth house cusp often. Because it's all as okay, so here's another bank account for the baby, or here's another. Um, in their minds, they're already setting up a financial structure uh, going, going forward for something. So you want to see that. When you see that, okay, so firstly, when I do see people, I like to know what's going on in their lives. Because I say to them, I don't really want you planning a huge publication of a book at the same time that you're intending to get pregnant without letting me know. Because sometimes Jupiter will give, but it'll only give here and it won't give there. So the, I think the reason why I am quite successful in my prediction of pregnancy is because I'm typically only looking for one thing. Mm -hmm. I'm not being expected to to interpret and and find out and predict five things. I'm only going for one. So I, I say to people, be quite clear that this is the thing that you're going for and streamline your life so that you're orientating yourself towards this because then you have more success at getting it. Right. That makes sense because there's so many... When you're doing astrology, it's one of the major obstacles to predictions is that there can be multiple threads or like a nexus of important events in a person's life at important turning points. And the astrologer may look and see some timing indicator that they think is going to mean something or some type of event, but it could be a, a secondary event that occurs at that time in the person's life. Exactly. And okay. it's not the astrologer's fault. It's just that the person is, has got these multiple streams of focus. Right. 
Yeah. That, and that's probably more, of, especially an issue in, in modern times where more women are able to push pregnancy later because they are trying to pursue careers um, and and make major career achievements before they are ready to sort of like sit down and have children. A really interesting um, a study would be, and I think Wendy Stacy might have done something in this area, that, you know, since 1965, Caesar births um, were, became very popular. Caesarean. Caesarean births. Yeah. So when we're having now, I mean, in most, uh, we, we could say that, yes, it's like in first world countries, Caesar births are the choice. So um, what you're going to have, obviously, is you're going to have a predominance of people who are born with 11, 11, 10, 9, maybe 8 house sons, because that's going to be the operating times of doctors that fits in with their lifestyle yeah they're a doctor we talked i interviewed her yeah. on a previous episode and she said they tend to schedule it during business hours so you have this sudden shift and preponderance of people that were born during the day basically instead of at night yeah so so one of the if i and i have to run it through jigsaw once um, many years ago i ran about two thousand of my charts through jigsaw and the common denominator amongst all of the female charts was a luminary the, the sun or the moon in the 10th house so that just randomly, it doesn't matter what moon or what sun. And what that told me was these are people who have a desire to be out there in the world and to be a cog in society. They're, 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 the meaning in their lives is to be out there in the world and not at home having children. And so they delay things. They become part of a corporate lifestyle. They earn their own money. And then what happens is they marry, but they've never, they've bought houses jointly, but they've never had to justify their purchases to anybody. And that... That financial, the loss of financial independence or the fact that you now have to hand over your practically your fiscal life to somebody else for a period of time is is um, makes them vulnerable. And, and, and quite honestly, is often the thing that stops them getting pregnant. And they will often self-sabotage in order not to get pregnant, in order to say, I tried, but it didn't work. So I just find it interesting that that we we need to find a way where it's not considered um unattractive for women to ask their husbands how they're going to be protected if they do get pregnant not to ask what is your will do you have any debt that i don't know about and by the way you're going to need to put 10 grand into my my, my account without asking as an allowance because i'm not asking you for money for you know things toothpaste so it's it's until we we sort that out and until we kind of realize that that we we're asking somebody to give up such a lot that that they they need that needs to be considered i i think yeah that's going to be it's very hard for the the 10,000 luminaries mm, okay yeah that makes sense and there's just so many different factors that you have to take into account as an astrologer that some astrologers may not be prepared to if they haven't gone through this or if they don't know all the, all the nuances, but it's something that you really started seeing all the different possible variations of, of different ways that people approach or different scenarios that come up during the context of, of having children for different people and how wildly different it is, but how you have to be able to identify what that looks like in the birth chart. Yeah, but I think all astrologers do that. Mm. All astrologers have to assess their, their, their client in terms of whatever the, it is they're asking, whether it's career or not. You have to, you know, wh where are you in your life? What were your expectations and what did your parents expect from you and why are you still seeking approval and all of those things. Um, my, my job often is to just be very um, common sense-like and to say to people, um, 
yeah, what, what are your expectations of your relationship? Um, do you know that it's going to get worse, not better initially? And and mostly asking men, what are what are your expectations of of mothering? Um, and and what and you'd be surprised. Some 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 people think about it a lot, and some people don't think about it at all. And I think that when people go to an IVF specialist to get pregnant, the IVF specialist has got no remit. They are legally not allowed to ask you about your nurturing experience with your mother. They are not allowed to ask about financial inequality in your relationship. They've got 15 minutes with you in order to get your eggs and scan you and get you out of their office. That's it. But when you come to an astrologer, because of the lack of regulation, ironically, we are allowed to ask anything. We can go anywhere. And so my doctors who work with me, and I work with a few doctors all over the world, they love getting patients with me. They say they are so efficient. They come in, they know what to expect. They've had their God chats, because that's another thing we can get into quickly. They've had their God chats. They, 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 know, they know what to expect physically. They know when they're going to have it, because I've done their charts with them. And my doctors are so supportive that they will stimulate the hormones according to the astrology charts that I give them and accommodate what, what, what they want to have happen. Right. So you're trying to bring a more almost like holistic approach to the entire process. Would that be a right way to f of phrasing that? Yeah. But what I'm saying is fr from from our point of view as astrologers, we, we are uniquely placed to be able to do that. I'm sure that doctors would love to discuss more things if they had the time, but they're actually not allowed to. Yeah. Well, because you're looking at the person's chart, which is giving you a unique insight into the life narrative as a whole, and it's bringing in components and background that you're able to then see and investigate more from the person's background and ask them questions about and have a dialogue about in order to sort of establish what their what their life narrative is. Yeah. I just want to get back onto that God thing, um, like I said to you before, because I think this is quite quite important. The, some people, if you've never experienced IVF and suddenly you realize, okay, we're going to have to have IVF, one of the questions that comes up for people is, are we not playing God? Are the doctors playing God? Right. And for some people, this is disturbing and it is contrary to their religious beliefs or whatever held um, faith issues that they have. So what I always say to them is, you know, with IVF and you know, with most things is that medical science can prepare you so we can still we can take out your eggs. We can fertilize your eggs outside of your body. We can create an embryo. We can then put that embryo back in. But it's the implantation that counts. And that's when the window for God to speak is still there. Because you can't force an implantation. And you can't film an implantation. And conception has never, ever been filmed and cannot be predicted. And so it's a very, very sacred moment. So even if you're using IVF, you're still setting it up and something else has to speak. Hmm. So it's a, it's, a, it's a nice way to get people around the, the God issue. Right. And similarly, as an astrologer, that's probably important in terms of um, setting expectations and, and the limitations of what you're able to do, even if you're able to give somebody an edge or an advantage in terms of the timing potentially, or to see timing periods coming up that might be more successful than others, there's still limitations to, to what you can actually accomplish. There are. And I always say to, the, I say to, 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 to my clients, you know, um, I cannot give you a 100% guarantee because because it's your body. I don't know what you're eating. I don't know what exercise you're doing. I don't know what your home environment is like. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what the what the doctor's good fortune is going to be on that day. I don't know whether the lab technician is going to be hungover. There's so many variables that I can never, ever give you 100%. But 
I can give you the best timing. I can give you the best potential. I can give you the luckiest, you know, window. And that's that's about it to maximize your chances. Mm-hmm. And so managing expectations then is probably a little bit of, of something that's necessary or something that you need to do in that process? I do, and I always do. That's the first thing. It's part of my little intro caveat. You do know I'm not, not a medical doctor. That's how I tell everybody I want them to nod their heads because when we start going into, you know, astrology used to be part of medicine. And when we start talking about the predispositions in the chart, it sounds very medical. And I want them to understand that I'm getting this from their astrology, not from some kind of weird medical background that I have. Mm -hmm. And then I, I say to people, if you haven't actually thought about investigating this, maybe it's useful if you do. So sometimes what happens is that I'll pick up a thyroid issue that they haven't investigated and that thyroid issue then can be sorted out and then their fertility can can continue. But their fertility was never going to be a success if they hadn't addressed the thyroid issue. So it's still important to have the conversation and to say these are general predispositions and it's almost like your astrological DNA. You might be carrying a, a marker for diabetes because your families are full of diabetes. So everybody in your family's got Venus square the moon. But... It could be um, cont contributing to your infertility and in that there's an insulin issue, which is giving you polycystic ovarian syndrome. So, and you know, the funny thing is, is that most people kind of know and they go, oh, you know, I knew I should have had that test. I know that something's not right. It's at that moment where you go, oh, yeah. And because it's somebody that's outside of the situation, that's, and it seems to be random, it's got that random feel to it. That's when people notice and they, and they do something. Yeah, and, and one that's always one of the most important experiences with astrology is oftentimes when you're sitting with a client, there's that experience of, of telling people something that they already know about their life or they've already experienced, um, but it's something that they've normalized or taken for granted and hearing it from an external like third party from a stranger that should have no background on the person's life and having it reflected back in that way just through looking at the chart is an important and maybe the most important part of the whole process of doing even just a natal consultation on its own. So it sounds like that, that's like a piece of it is just the sometimes mirroring back something a person already knows about their life, but they're not really fully taking into account or they're not doing something about. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But it also, it, it deepens the trust that they have with you. And then what I, what I always find is that, you know, we often get the situation where, um, so let's talk about moon Saturn. So we get people with moon Saturn and they are hard on themselves and they are sometimes emotionally isolated and they, the extrapolation to, toward, to, to, to where you could take that, um, that signature is, to, is they, they, they take themselves there. They go, I don't deserve. So it becomes a case of I don't have because I don't deserve. And so um, what I say is I've usually tried to establish enough um, in the chart, enough of a, a, a resonance, if you like, or enough of a sort of mirroring where they feel that the next thing I'm going to say is, is, is also truthful. So when we get to the point where I say, remember that thing about not deserving, well, your child is going to choose their own chart. And I firmly believe that the birth chart is a lens through which you perceive your life. It's not necessarily your real life. It's the way in which you choose to see it. Mm -hmm. So what we tend to do is we tend to edit out all reality and we, uh, through the, the, the lens of the chart. So I'll say, you know, so long as you, when your baby comes, they're going to have their own birth chart. And it doesn't matter if you are the perfect mother, if they've got moon Saturn, they're going to find something to find fault with. 
But it's okay because so long as you've fed them and you've and you've sent them to school and you've been consistent a consistent parent, that's the best that you can do. And the rest is up to them and how they perceive their reality. The kind of the, the feeling of relief, you can actually see it on their faces. And I say, if I've said anything truthful about you today, it's because you gave me your birth time, date and place. That's all I have to work with. And your child will come with their own birth date, time and place. So you can you will never you'll always be good enough. And it's amazing to see them just relax into that. And I often wonder, sometimes I wonder, is that all it took or is it just part of that process? But I just find it a useful conversation to go always to the deserving part. Yeah, that's well, that's a really important point about um, sometimes it's never clear how much uh, when people describe their relationships with other people or especially relationships with the parent and you can see that signature in the birth chart how much that's reflecting an external truth about how, let's say, the parent related to the child and whatever dynamics the parent actively did versus how much it's just the child's perception of the parent and their experiences with them that may that is their own actual subjective experience, but it may not objectively be as true um, if a third party like observed the relationship or something like that. Really good example of this, Chris, is that I have two girls, two children, and they were born 20 months apart. And the one sees me, the one sees me as a, a moon in Leo square Pluto, and the other one sees me as a moon in Cancer. Mm. Now, tell me, I can't be both. Right. But I can assure you, I'm the hardcore bitch. <laughs> I'm that Leo moon square Pluto. My older daughter, she sees me as Mother Teresa. As like the more nurturing type. And uh, we laugh about it in the family. We, it's, it's, an open, it's an open thing in the family. I go, how on earth do you see me as this perfect person? Because we all know I'm not. Mm. And um, but she laughs and she says, whatever I need, you, you give it to me. You give to me whatever I need in that moment. You're just unbelievably like there with whatever it is that I need. And I'm going, wow, okay. And these children are 20 months apart and there's no ways I could have been a different kind of mother. No ways. They had identical sort of bedtimes routines lifestyles everything mm. so that is one way to kind of for me at least to kind of go yeah well this is perception i mean that raises an uh, interesting issue in terms of um also that common experience that people say of different siblings at different parts of a family having different experiences of the person because of the order that they the were birth born order. like for example like the first child sometimes complaining that they had it worse because the parent was like more uptight or something like that. But then the second child, the parents started to get it down and they like adjusted and didn't make some of the same mistakes or different things like that. Um, it seems like it would partially be tied into that issue as well in terms of that sequence. But that would be something that would be described to some extent in the birth chart actually is, is part of what you're saying. I think so. I think it's the younger one that sees me as the the Leo Moon Square Pluto. Oh, really? Okay. Not the older one. Mm. The older one has got so they 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 each have got sort of my my DNA, astrological DNA. So the one has got the Moon Square Pluto, and the other one has got the Moon opposite Saturn Uranus. So I've got I've got a Moon conjunct Saturn opposite Pluto Uranus. Mm. So they kind of have taken bits and pieces of me, but when I have quizzed them because this this obviously has interested me as a fertility astrologist, like how they have perceived my mothering and my my uh, ability to nurture them. Um, it's been just jolly interesting that the older one comes up with the Mother Teresa and the younger one comes up with a much more hardcore version. <laughs> mm, okay. 
And you've had two children, and then this is where also part of your personal story intersects with the topic of fertility astrology, because you did um, have go through some of this process at one point in trying to have a third child. Yes, in 2004, I'd married a very lovely second husband, and he hadn't had children. So I decided to go for IVF. So we did try bits of Clomid. I mean, and this is the other thing, you know, when we talk about... How uh, old were you at the time? I was approximately 31. Okay. And um, I'd had two children by surprise, and uh, so there was nothing wrong with me. And he had also had a previous um, pregnancy, which he had terminated when he was very much long, younger. And so we were typically that couple where it's, you know, 30% of the time it's unexplained infertility. Right, so you didn't. You were expecting this to just we be were easy. Expecting to and, be very easy. Yeah, and then yeah. all of a sudden you're trying, and it's just like not working, and you're wondering what's going on. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but at the same time, I must confess, um, I was I went through the IVF process with sort of one eye on the astrology, so I was curious, and I was I I, I had my whole my, just my whole attitude and brain was wide open to to catch and see all the symbolism that I could. Um, while I wasn't, I wasn't in that typical framework of being devastated if I wasn't going to succeed because my youngest child was actually 12 mm. and that gap was going to be huge and my life would have been very different. But, um, so we, yeah, so we approached this IVF, I think with a fairly healthy kind of skepticism and a healthy kind of approach of, well, this may not work out. My husband had the South node in his fifth house. And I always had an eye on that. And I went, okay, there's a certain amount of rejection here. Of natally or by transit? Natally. Natally, okay. And and then I also, I mean, obviously I looked at my, my, my own chart and I went, well, there's so much in my chart that's so paradoxical. So the other thing is that fertility isn't stagnant. So I don't think you can ever look at a chart at the age of 15 and, and make like a categorical statement about somebody's fertility for a couple of reasons. Again, that person's got to partner up with somebody else and their chart might speak louder than, than this chart. So it all depends on who you're having babies with. Mm. Um, and secondly, it's fertility is not static. Um, so it, it, it changes. One way in which I could, um, a technique that I devised to try and describe the changes was to direct the unmutant of um, pregnancy through triplicity phase rulerships which was something that nobody has done. I uh, went to look for, you know, valence and, um, every, you know, trawled through a, a number of old texts and everybody can direct the Arabic part and they, they, they directed the part of fortune, but nobody really has been directing the Almutan of pregnancy through triplicity. Right. And so by that, you mean you, you look at the three triplicity rulers yes. using the Dorthean triplicities yes. of the Almutan of pregnancy? Yes. Yes. And okay. then and then you're making a comment as to are you going to be one of those people that has children early or later in life? So of course instead of and one should have, but who does it anymore? Please don't tell me you do I feel so inadequate. Um calculate the alcocodon for somebody's length of life. Right. Okay, before they come to see you. And then you'd you'd you would, you know, divide their, their, their life into three and then you'd say, Okay, in this half of your life your on mutant or pregnancy is more active or more prominent. And therefore, you're going to have your children here or here. We know that obviously you might live till the age of 80, but no one's fertile till the age of 80. So we have to actually condense that sort of period of fertility to from 14 to 45. 
And so I kind of chop it somewhere. And it's not it's not an exact science. I kind of, I think at about 26, 27 is the first chop off. And then at about 38 is the next chop off. So when I look at somebody's um, chart, um, I will direct our mutant of, of um, pregnancy. And I'll say, okay, well, if the triplicity phase uh, ruler in the, is in the second half, then maybe you're going to be more likely to get pregnant in the second half of your fertility life. Um, and, and yeah, so that's a way in, in which to look at it. Anyway, when looking at my, my, my husband's chart, it, it didn't look that promising. My own chart was more interesting because I could see that by triplicity phase rulership, I'd moved into a different phase. Um, which is com completely explains the phenomena of secondary inf infertility as a whole. So a lot of people complain that they get pregnant in their 20s, late 20s, and the minute they get over 30, they, they struggle to get pregnant, and they then spend the next five years battling. It's interesting that just past the Saturn return, basically. It's a phenomena. Secondary fertility is a phenomena. Um, so yeah, so there was that. Um, so I, I, I did go through that process, and I must admit, much... So I would, I would love for uh, astrology to stand on its own and for, 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 for men to be fertility astrologers and for, you know, for everybody to, to engage with us. It does relax my patients or clients a lot when I say I've been through, through IVF right. because it, it, they go mad. They go on such high doses of hormones that they are literally, they don't know themselves and they, they are, they, they almost, they, they, they they get on the internet and they join these forums and it's almost like they don't even want to talk to their family members anymore because as far as they're concerned, their family members have got no idea of what they're going through, which is true. And so they isolate themselves from the rest of the world and they only really are interested in talking to people with experience. So I'm very glad of that experience and I'm also equally glad that we weren't successful because I wouldn't be here today if we were, if that makes sense. Because you wouldn't have. Because why? Why are you saying? Because I would have been. I would have had another child. And I would right. have had to go through that whole process of giving up hobbies like astrology. Yeah, they would only be turning like eighteen or something at this exactly. point. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that is interesting is you know the date in which um, basically you found out that the process had been unsuccessful, right? Yes. And I noticed that um, Saturn was stationing. Um, direct i believe in your fifth whole sign house and opposing your son very closely on that day yeah so that was a, that's an interesting transit in terms of like saturn transiting your fifth house having this obstacle come up in terms of being able to have children going through this long process but then and ultimately it being unsuccessful and saturn kind of saying no at that time yeah so what was interesting about that whole time frame is that you you don't really. So firstly, Saturn was not my own mutant of pregnancy. Had Saturn been my own mutant of pregnancy, that would have been happy days. That would have been twins. Mm. Um, but Saturn wasn't. Jupiter Jupiter was. So I think I, I think the, the even if I even if I had and I don't remember clocking it exactly. I don't remember looking at my chart because remember I think I was still a very young astrologer then. I was not even. I hadn't even graduated yet. And you first started studying with Rod yes. Suskin in South Africa. Yes. You're from South Africa. Yeah. Okay. So not not so affair with astrology. So I don't think I'd even notice that. But I must tell you that even if I had noticed that, I still would have gone through the process because your time frame 
of success. And, and I'm kind of always at the edge of like kind of not using the astrology instead of, of medical science. We can't, we can't just dismiss the medical science just because astrology is um, saying no. What we must do is do the medical science knowing full well that it might be a no and manage your expectations. So right. that's would it be, that would have been my um, attitude at the time had I noticed that Saturn stationing. Um, that's re- and that's super important because there's some people that go through that process and they reach, let's say, a Saturn obstacle in their life at that point, but through much effort and sometimes hardship, they're able to push through it and still come out the other side getting what they want or being successful. Yeah, I think I think for me the the the, the joyful part of that IVF and its subsequent failure was literally lying in that bed. I mean, I I know I, I know I present the charts as Nancy and Lisa, and yes, it is my chart. But I mean, can you imagine as an astrologer and you lying next to somebody and they're going through the same process and you ask them for their birth data and they give it to you? And you quickly rig it up on your phone, and you work out that their chart is an exact mirror image of yours. Mm. I mean, that was that. I, I just that was gold. It was like that was just awesome. It was. It was. And then I also felt so for her because she had she her unmuting of pregnancy was Mars, and it was so much more dignified than mine, and it had so many much more beneficial contacts. And and later on, I found out even better fixed stars. But I also, she had like a little one cell embryo. I mean, I had five, five cell embryos. I had like, I had loads of, of perfect looking embryos. And she had this tiny one little sickly thing and they were just putting it back in because this was the last, the last time they could afford it. And I remember actually lying, lying on the bed next to her and I remember thinking to myself, you know, this, this is this double Pisces. I remember thinking... Please, if there's a baby, go to her. She needs one. I, I, I've got two children. Go to her. And I remember that feeling. I, I remember that kind of. I remember that leaving. And so there's a lot about it that I don't feel any regret or any kind of uh, sorrow that that didn't work out. Because I think, just in terms of that book and what I've done with my life, it's just wow. That was the reward. Yeah. So, so one of the points that you're just saying that you had. A case study of somebody that was born within a year of you with the rising sign, the exact opposite of yours. So there are many interesting parallel transits, but she had a better lineup astrologically for being successful. And she ended up being successful while you didn't at that time. Yes. Um, but that's an interesting, again, it's like Saturn transit that's kind of parallel to um, we were talking about Saturn in the 10th house earlier and, and a mother that maybe has to give up a career in order to you know, pursue other life work, having a child at that time. And and for you, that Saturn transit through your fifth was kind of like not being successful in having a third child at that time, but this opening up a whole new world to you in terms of you getting much more personal firsthand experience and understanding the whole process much better in a way that you might, you, you wouldn't have up to that point. And therefore, eventually being able to go on and write this book and help lots of other people through this process. I would definitely, I would definitely say that that's a, that's a true reading of it, and not, and not only because the Saturn, my Saturn conjunct my Moon is in the twelfth house, and it's sextiling my Sun in the tenth, ruled by Saturn. So I think that yeah, I think I have a tendency to turn hardships into into new, I don't know, new things, hmm. and and make it work in a positive way, or at least have a positive attitude. That might be my Pollyanna double Pisces. Don't care, <laughs> still working. Sure. Uh, yeah, or, or even just having, I think, a day chart, Saturn, sometimes in those surmountable difficulties, being a little bit more negotiable sometimes. 
Um, so a lot of this is taking place in the context or part of the backdrop of some of this work is, is medical astrology. And even though you're not a doctor, still having some background in some of the traditional understanding of what signatures mean different things with respect to the body is kind of an important component of this as opposed to having a purely, let's say, like psychological understanding of astrology. You know, I, I can't stress this often enough, and, and that is... I think especially, I mean, in, in niche astrologies like fertility astrology, financial astrology, you know, those, um, those astrologies which are focusing on a specific area. I think you can't really do the astrology justice unless you actually know the environment really well. Right. So in order to be a financial astrologer, you've got to know the stock market and you've got to know exactly how it works. You've got to know finance. You've got to know it you just as well as you know just the astrology. Exactly. Yeah. So a similar thing happens with... <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. With fertility astrology, a similar thing happens. You've got to, you've got to um, you've got to you, you've got to make it your your interest and your focus. And and luckily for me, I'm supported by some really lovely doctors who have allowed me um, in in certain circumstances to actually watch IVF uh, procedures. So I've been able to. I mean, there's this. There's this feeling out there. I mean, every time I say, well, you know, the fallopian tubes are ruled by Mercury, I can see a hundred astrologers nodding their heads thinking, yes, because it's a tube. You go down the tube, Mercury travels down the tube. Whereas when I, when I saw it, when I was watching these IVF um, procedures, all I saw was the doctor is putting like a sperm and an egg, which is like the sun and the moon together in the fallopian tube. The fallopian tube is facilitating a cosmic marriage. That was my, my understanding that the fallopian tubes are ruled by Mercury. So it kind of, it, it really, it broadened my ability to, to, to think on that level, to, to actually see it happen. And when I saw an ICSI um, process, and so ICSI is a process where when normal fertilization doesn't happen because the boundary of the egg is too hard and the sperm can't get in for a number of reasons, and we'll talk about that in a moment, what they do is they actually take the sperm in an injection needle and they pierce the outer lining of the egg and they actually forcibly introduce the sperm into the egg. Mm. And so when I saw that, it's like kind of, oh, at moon Mars in a woman's chart. So that's the way that the, the eggs are going to get fertilized. Mm. ICSI. So I say to people, instead of waiting for your second round of IVF with ICSI, because ICSI is always an additional add-on that gets charged for us. I said, have ICSI the first time. Don't wait. Just, just have it the first time. So, right, because Mars symbolically has like a piercing quality. Yeah, yeah. So, I've been, I've, I've been lucky to have that, um, that support to broaden my medical knowledge and my, my, so that I could deepen that symbolism. Okay, so that's really important because you can't just be a good astrologer. You have to know the details of all the different medical procedures and the different scenarios that are involved, so that then you can then develop a, an understanding of what symbolism that you're looking for and what different things you're seeing in the chart actually look like in real life yeah okay yeah and i think also understanding so so i broadened my my my, my understanding to incorporate medical anthropology because i think that we need to understand how people regard illness and for a lot of people fertility is a disease or it's an illness because it's an aberration from the norm it's 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 not for them it's not normal it is it's a condition and it's about understanding how 
how people respond to that and how they want to. So there's going to be those who fight against stuff. They're, they're those with strong sort of martial elements in their chart where everything is a quest and everything is like in military language. And when somebody's sitting with, with, with you and, and that's their attitude, it's really important to meet them at that that place where and we talk about a fight and then you can adjust your language so that it feels like you're on their side in their fight against this and then, then there are other people who who they first want to find the meaning like what does this mean that i'm not pregnant does this mean that i'm unworthy does it mean and then for, for them you've got to use a different approach but medical anthropology has given me like um, um, a much more um, how can i say um, academic and thoroughly structural framework on which to hang my my consultation uh, practice or the way in which I, I, I approach it and for that I'm very grateful because I also happen to think that we astrologers get very frustrated that other people don't read our academic papers and that other people don't uh, step up and and learn more about astrology before they come out and criticize it but likewise I'm always conscious of the need for us to actually go and study other stuff in order for us to have a, a, be able to have a sensible comment on that as well. Mm. So I want to see I want to see in what way can can we can we contribute to medical anthropology? In what way can can fertility astrology uh, form part of their normal lexicon? You know, I, I want and thankfully because of Insta and because of the world we live in, astrology is much more seems to be much more accepted and much more sort of, I don't know, it's getting its own sort of groove again. Um, and I just hope to be part of that kind of serious conversation happening on the side. Right. Yeah, it's really taken off over the past few years and much more advanced forms of astrology. You know, 10 years ago, people would know their sun sign, but never, everybody knows their sun, moon, and rising sign, their big three. And that's such a major shift just in and of itself. Um, but that being said, one of the things that was interesting that you mentioned in the book is oftentimes it's the the mother that's approaching you or wanting to come in for the consultation um, often or sometimes as a last resort. But then the, the husband often is is like skeptical or is kind of being dragged into it. And some of that famous um, sort of gender dynamic where where for some reason women tend to be at this point in time, more open to astrology, and there tend to be more men tend to be more skeptical for whatever reason. But that comes up as an issue sometimes for you in the consulting room, since it's often couples coming to see you. It does. It does come up, and so my approach to that is to to firstly, I like. Th there's nothing more depressing than a fertility consult. So I often say to people right up front, I say, you know what, guys, when you put down the Zoom call, I want you to understand that today has been about looking for problems as to why you're not getting fertile. This is not a normal as astrological meeting. And normally we would talk about all the positive things in your chart, health, wealth, happiness, and it would be quite bright and sunny. Right, because they're coming to you with like, yeah. a problem. So I'm looking for the problem. So I'm going to be really like um, candid. Uh, uh, you know, I'm a Capricorn, so my bedside manner is a little bit stretched to the point. Mm -hmm. But I also have got enough Mercury and Sag that I actually use humor, um, especially when I'm trying to relax a couple where I see that the guy is a little bit nervous and he's not sure he wants to be there. I start talking about her chart and and in slightly like you're doing like a stand up routine or conspiratorial kind of things. Okay. I like I know why you feel this way because you know it's she does this or she does that, and I'll gently make like a light issue. 
And those girls don't mind that you slightly like, you know, having a giggle at their expense because they understand that they you're making the husband comfortable. And once I start getting more and more accurate about her and the chart and how their charts work together, um, they they relax because this isn't about blame. And I, I often say, you communicate like this and she communicates like that and neither of you are going to change. So you don't have to go off and do work. You just have to understand that this is what, what she means when she says this and this is what you mean when you say that. And instantly they, they realize, these skeptical men, that there's nobody's pointing a finger as to who's infertile and why. It's just, this is this is the deal. So I try and at least make people laugh at themselves or at me or be self-deprecating at least once in the interview just to bring it up a bit and also normalize it. Most of my patients say when they leave that they didn't realize how normal IVF was and that they didn't realize how common and that it's okay and that it's going to be fine. They've built up a huge thing in their minds about how awful it is and how devastating and what have you and I just dial it down completely and go no it's not we're just going to do these three treatments we're just going to do it here this is what it's going to feel like right and in some of the interviews uh for example on your youtube channel with past clients it seems like afterwards there's there's the husband or men in some instances who you know were were impressed or once they saw the results you know it's just a matter of what works and and what helps in terms of the process and maybe um, you know, being more impressed or convinced that there's something to astrology after going through it sometimes when you're able to to help them in some way? I know the couple you're referring to, um, the wife is actually a research scientist and the husband is a chemical engineer. Mm. And so these are not stupid people. Um, and she she was of the, um, the kind that she just thought, you know what, um, I'm going to try. I'm going to try everything, and this is the one thing I haven't tried. They tried something like seven or eight IVFs, and it didn't work. Mm. And she said, "This is the one thing I haven't tried, so I'm going to try this." Um, and I don't care what people think about it or what what have you. She was in that completely irrational frame of mind, but she's a researcher, so her mind is always actually open. Ironically, she's not you know closed. And he was just trying to keep her happy, um, but also not terribly close. He was just going, okay, well, we're doing acupuncture. We might as well do this as well. So he, um, they signed up. And then what it gave to them, and and, and in, in fact, another couple immediately after them also said was, men like a bit of a roadmap. Men like to know what's going to happen when. So if you just give them this piece of paper and say, this is when you're going to have your treatments for the next year, they suddenly relax because they know what they're supposed to be doing. They can organize their leave. And there's not, none of this, we'll make up our minds on a day-to-day basis. So most men like the fact that there's now a plan and they like the fact that, that, that there's no like indulging of any sort of harebrained schemes. So when people come and say like, you know, I, I don't have any embryos, I don't have any eggs, but I don't know about egg donation, I'll get them to egg donation as fast as I can because I'll believe that that's their, their quickest way to getting pregnant. So I, we don't indulge fantasies. So, and the men are, are grateful for that. So the minute I, there's common sense applied and there's a plan, that, that seems to work for them. The couple that you're referring to, actually, he, he then started con- to consult me for the next two years. And it was actually in one of the consult, um, consultations with him afterwards where I predicted their, their fourth child. So I predicted that they would have a baby and they ended up having triplets. And then, but... In the next two years, I said to him, about nine months after the triplets were born, I said, be careful because you've got a very fertile marker in your chart. And he laughed. He said, don't be daft. We had nine IVFs to have those children. And I said, no, no, really. 
and they managed to get pregnant with with um, their son Ethan all all on their own mm. um, at the time that astrology you know said so. Um, he then actually started studying astrology with Rod Suskin. He, as a as a chemical engineer, he saw that there is a pattern to this. I think he appreciated the fact that while we might not understand the pattern and we might not have the scientific tools to measure the pattern, who knows about the rays from the planets? He's not really that interested um, in, in in that kind of thing. He just said there seems to be a pattern, and I want to know more about it. So. It's it's heartening that you can turn somebody around to, to but equally, pe- I've had people. I did a research paper recently for the at the, the University of Lampeter. I think it's I published on Academia.edu, and in it, I asked eleven people who'd been successful with me what their their experience with fertility astrology was and how they how they thought that they'd experienced it. And there was a lady there who was extremely hostile. She hated me, but she she got pregnant, and she 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 had to admit. She said, "I hated you for for reasons because you know I, I was struggling. I, I tried everything else; it hadn't worked. I didn't believe that it was going to work. I was your your sort of your worst your worst kind of patient, the one that wasn't going to be compliant, and um, and it worked. And so she said, "So I I'm a believer in in, in your kind of astrology, but but yeah, and and I'm sorry." I, I was hostile at the time. So it's not a case of whether you believe in it or how skeptical you are as to how successful you're going to be. It seems to to work anyway, you know. Right. Even if you're sort of reluctant or even if it's for some people, it's like a last resort in terms of trying to achieve this. Yeah. Okay. Um, how do you, I, I can imagine though there's other scenarios. One of the issues is the astrologer wants to help and the astrologer wants to be able to for example, predict good things or make a good prediction, mm-hmm. um, or one that's in alignment with what the client wants. But I'm sure in some instances, sometimes you run into an issue um, where it looks more challenging, or um, you know, you don't want to give a client false hope either. Um, so that's something I know all astrologers struggle with. But it's probably even more pressing here when people want to achieve something specific. It is one of the first, uh, one of the, I think one of the um, uh, difficult signatures that I see in a chart in a woman who has been struggling or is, um, is, is a moon Neptune hard aspect, because that is most often prevalent in my um, charts that have eggs with a chromosomal integrity issue, which means that there's a genetic a problem and that the embryos is something not quite right at the embryos. So what tends to happen is that they have many IVF implantations, but they they lose the baby before a heartbeat is detected. Um, some of them don't have the money to do pregenetic testing, so they they're a bit blind. They don't know what's what's happening. They just know that it isn't working. And those women are potentially already sort of 42, 43. And then you have to say to them, you know, like, so, so what is a deal breaker here? Is, is it a deal breaker in your life to, to have a baby? And if the answer is yes, that you, you, it is a deal breaker, you want a baby more than anything, then I say to them, you have to consider donor egg then. If you don't mind either way, you can carry on trying. But I'm telling you now that, that you know, with people with this, this signature or this marker, most often require donor egg. And it's a hard conversation to have, but they've already been told a lot of like home truths. They've already been to a doctor. Most of them know. 
I, I kind of refuse to be that, that, that person who, who just says, never mind about what the doctors say and I'll do a spell for you, light a candle or all be fine. I'm not, I'm not that person. So it's, it's tell me what your goals are and I'll align myself and my astrology with your goals. But we, I can't be, um, yeah, I can't be pretending that you don't have serious issues. Yeah. I have had about three 50-year-old patients and they've been really challenging. Um, and I've handed them to, I have got a very lovely doctor that does deal with older women and who's very good at doing the best that he can. But, um, and the, the point is to never say never, refer them to specialists who are sensitive and caring and who can help, but also let them know. So what I say, if you are not pregnant by this date, then you must consider that the door is closed. So I give them a, a, a time in the future where they don't have to do it in front of me they don't have to do it in the moment. They can consider it later to be something they need to walk away from. Um, and one of the things that you do utilize, so in addition to using natal astrology, looking for natal signatures, and also looking at transits or other timing techniques based on the natal chart, is you also employ electional astrology in order to help pick out dates for different parts of the process, especially it seems like the the implanting um, is a major thing that you try to some extent to elect? You know, okay, so the, the problem with fertility astrology and any prediction is that you you are so squeezed by what's happening in, in the woman's cycle and the medical fraternity that you have less room to maneuver than you think. Hmm. So using any timing related to the moon, forget it. You know, you I cannot give somebody a, a day that you have to have your implantation on this day at this clinic, that's not going to work mm. because it, it's just not feasible. Due to restrictions of scheduling with the clinic and their limited uh, options for availability? Exactly. And okay. also the woman's cycle. The woman's cycle suddenly goes out. Her follicle isn't big enough. They've got to wait a little bit longer. It's There are so many variables. And you, the last thing you want to do is stress your patient even more by giving them dates that they can't possibly adhere to. Mm. And then they feel like they've missed their one and only chance. So I tend to use like really big... Um, solar arcs and I use those solar arcs because and I say to people they are hot to trot a week before and three weeks after which gives them an adequate window for their implantation to happen anytime in those four weeks which means that their hormonal cycle doesn't need to be altered too much and because it's a solar arc we know that it's probably got a three-month window not just a but I'm trying to get them to as closest to that date as possible but potentially just after mm. And so that's what we're aiming for. We can't aim for any progression of the moon. We can't aim for, um, yeah, any any closer time time cycle is 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 really tricky. Transits. I look to transits of Jupiter to the moon, sort of before when we're doing the egg, egg retrieval. So if we're doing an egg retrieval, I might say because they might egg retrieval and implantation can happen at different times. So if I say, listen, if your problem is the fact that you don't have that many eggs and you are going to do a frozen transfer, then have your eggs retrieved here because look, Jupiter's conjunct your moon. Jupiter's not conjunct your moon like six weeks later when you're having the implantation, but that's okay. You've already got the eggs you need. So it's I do adjust slightly, um, but it is difficult to elect. I will never just elect a day for something. Mm. or it's And I'll try and avoid eclipses, obviously, and I'll try and avoid the Saturn square Neptunes um, in terms of having an implantation date. But you'd be surprised that you 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 don't really have much to maneuver with as an astrologer. 
Sure. Well, and even some of those broad things that you gravitate towards or avoid in terms of the astrological weather at the time, even over several month time spans, I guess, would still count as a, as a type of electional astrology, even if it's not picking the exact day and time? Yes. Yeah, I would say. Okay. Um, one of the things that came up in the book, as you said, with medical intervention and stuff, there's going to be opportunities that are becoming more and more frequent in terms of being able to choose, like doing um, medical in, in interventions in terms of uh, changing genes and stuff like that, uh, as a as a ish as a thing that comes up. But it also raised an interesting parallel that sometimes comes up for astrologers is the question of like electing a cesarean birth or having an idea of like what the birth chart roughly speaking at some point eight months in the future is going to be for a, a child and that almost being a sort of engineering in and of itself to some extent does that ever come up as a process or is that something you've thought about abstractly it it does come up so i do often get women coming to me saying i want to pass his baby i want to leave a baby i want mm. whatever and you go well you know depending on how how much you've been struggling like Again, what is the deal breaker? Do you want a baby? Let's let's be real. Mm -hmm. um, and also to say that you know it's um, it's really really difficult to get to get that to get that right. Um, and so no, I don't do that, and I don't like the the gender engineering either. So there are lots of people who is, and a lot of Indian people come to me and ask me for advice on how to have a girl a girl baby or picking a time for a girl embryo i know vedic astrology and um, and jonash actually also he had uh, some method to determine that you know if you if you had a conception when the moon was in a female sign you'd have a female baby and when the moon was in a male sign you'd have a male baby but since nobody's been around to even witness a conception i don't know how that's actually possible to predict right you brought this up in the book as an objection to some earlier methods on fertility astrology that are kind of out there but um one of the issues is is conception and issues surrounding like when conception actually takes place due to some timing issues there yeah so okay so i, I just want to make clear that the jernish method is terribly elegant in that it wants to suggest that you are most fertile when you repeat the natal lunar solar aspect in your chart Okay, so if you were born with, with like a crescent a, moon, then you're going to be pregnant or most fertile on a crescent moon every month. Okay, so that's the the theory or the hypothesis. That's, a, that's the hypothesis. So, which begs the question now because I'm saying, okay, so we bleed every 28 days, and somewhere in between, and ovulation can vary quite a lot in 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 women. So, not every woman ovulates on day 14. Some women ovulate on day 11. Some on day 16. Uh, you know there is a, a there's a, a certain amount of variability we can tell and we can film the ovulation that's that's the easy part but nobody knows so once once your your egg has been released from the ovary it then travels down the fallopian tube the sperm then travels up through the cervix and into the fallopian tube and comes to meet the egg where they are fertilized in the fallopian tube it then takes another and this is the interesting point up to 6 days for that embryo to come back down into the uterus and to implant in the uterus. So you could have had sexual reproduction on Saturday, but only by the following Friday is that uh, uh, embryo going to come back and implant in the uterus, but nobody can check. It could be sooner, it could be later. 
So when we're using a, the Jonas method, I'm going, how does he know when conception happens? There's a six-day lag, and the moon can move a lot in six days. So I'm not sure how he did his paper. I'm not sure how he 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 worked it out because I don't I don't know where, what his starting point was. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So right. so he was just using sexual activity, and then furthermore, he was using reported sexual activity. Now it is my experience with my fertility clients that people lie a lot about when they have sex. So you'll find that somebody um, will say about, oh, yes, and we got pregnant and we got pregnant on this anniversary. No, they didn't get pregnant on that anniversary. They got pregnant two weeks before when they had a massive do or die blowout fight and everybody was drunk and disorderly. But they don't want to own that they got pregnant on that night. It's much more nice and romantic to say we got pregnant on this anniversary. So I know that people lie. I, I'm very realistic about this. But Jonas seems to base his entire data on when people said they had sex. He didn't see them have sex. And then furthermore, there's a discrepancy with the day. So I'm not sure how Jonas can be used in my nat in my natural astrology, natural medical astrology. However, I reserve like a little space for Jonas and say, if we're going to use Jonas in horary astrology, then that's a potential because that's then using it as a completely different divinatory tool. That's no longer natural medical astrology that's of another order, then then I'm quite happy for people to, to use it like that. I also think that Jonas was um, not irresponsible, but again, I don't know how he supports his hypothesis for gender selection on the moon and the conception because of those the lag of those six days. And because gender selection sometimes is so medically important, I mean, if you have hemophilia in, in your family and you cannot afford to have a son because your son will have hemophilia, I would not want that on my head to choose an elective date to, to make sure that they only have female children. Hmm. So, and I also, again, don't like the, 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 the engineering part where people don't want female children because they only want male children, like in some Asian countries. I, I get a lot of requests for that. So I've decided as a, just as a practice policy just not to do that. Hmm. Also because I can't find an astrology that is watertight enough or give, that'll give me the confidence to be able to, to do that. Sorry, and just one issue, and another issue on that thing is, most people will will also ask me, "Will I ever get pregnant?" They okay. Look at my chart. Will I ever get pregnant? And I want to go. Well, the question is, will you ever get pregnant with this chart? So you must bring me the other chart so that that I can see that chart too. The and, part partner's chart. You mean? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's very hard to say. Will I ever get pregnant? If you're going to bring me somebody's chart who's totally infertile, the answer is probably going to be no. Um, the other thing is, is we have spent a lot of our lives, us females or couples, contracepting. And so you're, you're, if, I, if the Vedics, for instance, they've got a very clear uh, black and white understanding of how many children you're going to have. But if you've been contracepting, you might have denied the opportunity for those children to come. So it's a moot point. Mm. It's not one that's easily answerable. So that's another funny little philosophical thing that I, I often have to spend time thinking about. But I keep coming around to, well, we, there's no answer to that, is there? Right. Yeah. It's sort of similar to the issue of, of medical intervention being like a new thing in modern times. And sometimes you're saying that showing up with Uranus, uh, transit of just like advancements in technology, changing what otherwise might be the, the natural order of things. Yeah. And let's face it, when you have a woman of 45 coming to see you to have a baby, I mean, if I was practicing medieval astrology, she would be looking at grandchildren and she would be possibly going to die soon. <laughs> Hmm. You know, this is, we, we are asking sometimes too much of astrology. And that's why I suppose this book is, a, is an attempt to 
kind of um, show at least my very basic and rudimentary um, understanding of how to integrate what's happening now in, in, in medical technology with an older astrology so that we can at least use the older astrology, but we, we, we now know how to manage our expectations or we now know how to make it applicable as opposed to just something that's on a bookshelf that we can't access. Yeah, and how to contextualize it, which one of the really great things you were talking about earlier at the beginning of this interview was just talking about the concept of detriment and drawing on Bernadette Brady's um, statements or interpretations of how in some traditions that's referred to as exile and being away from home because the planet's literally the furthest from its domicile that it can get by being in the sign opposite to one of the signs that it rules. And then in, in modern times that you've seen that sometimes manifest in um, symbolically appropriate ways in that context? Yes. And quite often in, in, in same-sex couples, particularly men who have to have um, surrogacy, what seem, they seem to have a lot of their unmutinal pregnancy in, in, in detriment. And often they are literally using surrogates from across the world, um, which I've always find so interesting in its actual manifestation. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then circling back to the conception issue, isn't there a separate issue of like, can't sperms survive for like a few days or something like that? And that can cause a delay in terms of when conception takes place? Yeah. So, so sperm can last up to about four days, depending on the pH um, of the vagina. So if the pH is, is very acidic, not so long, but if the pH is more balanced, well, yeah. Okay. So there's just a whole host of issues in terms of the traditional concept of the conception chart which even, I, I mean, I want to say that was probably rectified most of the time uh, in ancient astrology and, and was primarily designed in order to study how well the, the pregnancy itself might go. But um, there's just a lot of a host of like practical issues with trying to come up with a conception chart at this point. There are. Um, I don't recall the older, older writers having issues to do with the conception chart. Uh, they, they, they kind of might have said conception and sexual reproduction were, were one and the same. Hmm. Aristotle was the first one who 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 kind of uh, he came up with he came up with a weird thing where he said if the, that a boy baby takes sixty days to get a heartbeat and a girl baby takes forty days to get a heartbeat or something like that. And so, and he also had, he had the numbers down to, you know, you've got a pregnancy of 240 days and then you have a pregnancy of 268 days. And if it's 268 days, it means this. And so he, he had um, various understandings of sort of, I think they were Venus cycles and, um, and he, he had, oh, and by the way, he had no problem with termination until quickening until about 16 to 20 weeks. That wasn't an issue for, for, for Aristotle. But I was really um, interested in this, firstly, the difference between the 60 days and the 40 days for a male or a female fetus, because I, I don't think you could possibly tell that. But it does highlight that there sometimes is a lag. So sometimes, you know, um, women can bleed um, in, in the first week of pregnancy. So if you're getting pregnant sort of in the last two weeks of the month or later, you might still bleed. And then he might have assumed that that pregnancy was... Uh, younger, a younger pregnancy, then she misses her next one, but then he thinks, okay, she's only two weeks pregnant, not actually four weeks pregnant. 
So there seems to be like a bit of um, discrepancies in, in his understanding. But I just think it's it's uh, really interesting that he he those 60 and 40 days is roughly six to eight weeks when when the heartbeat does come in. I'm going, wow, did he hear that? How did he? I mean, he must have. I mean, it's quite something to 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 have witnessed or observed, if you if you like, it in in those days. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I remember talking about conception charts, like Hephaestus of Thebes, for example, has his birth chart, and then he has his conception chart, supposedly. And Valens probably also has his conception chart. But in both instances, they're trying to demonstrate this theoretical concept that goes back to Nechepso and Pedasiris that like the the moon at conception, sign of the moon at conception is the ascendant at birth and and vice versa or something like that. So it's a very like a theoretical concept, which is one of the reasons it makes me think that maybe conception charts were probably just rectified based on that concept mainly rather than something that was you know very more strictly based. Of course, because if anybody in, in your family or close to you has been pregnant, we we know that the doctor and and with some fairly fancy technology, they can make some predictions as to as to when you're going to deliver, and you know according to birth weight, size, and and, and what have you. And um, very few people are actually give birth on the day that they're supposed to. Mm, so right. it's it's really uh, and with some huge variables, and also due to environmental conditions again that that you have no control over. So. It's. It, I think the conception chart is a theoretical um, chart. I happen to know that 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 I was about a month premature. So um, it, it makes anything that I, that I look at, I go, well, how how do, how do I even approach that? Do I give him this birth date, or do I do I give him the birth date when I was supposed to be due? Mm. Um, so yeah. Yeah, and well, that and that raises a really interesting point as well, which is that with advances in medical technology, children can be born much earlier, more premature and still survive than in ancient times? This is true. And and often, so in the early, early days, it's not a long time ago when I was doing Bernadette's um, medieval course, we were looking at um, you know, the, the chart differentia. And basically, I mean, I'm a twin. And um, although I've got quite a strong high leg, everything else is like super screwed. So basically, because I'm the girl twin, I would have been put out in the wood and, you know, and just left. Um, secondly, I mean, I've got this moon Saturn opposite Pluto Uranus square Mercury Jupiter and nothing, there was nothing else going in my favor. So I think it's a class two differentia chart or something like that. So it's just, it's interesting to me that, that you... And, and I would have thought that that would have had an impact on my health. So I would have thought that having such a differential chart might have implications for health later on. But it doesn't seem to have been the case for me. And it's certainly at the time that we were doing that course, it seemed to have some kind of effect on Charlie Chaplin, if I was, if I remember correctly, that his differential of chart meant that there were... But again, it's all about medical technology and the and the and the, the rescues that we can have. I mean, I've had my appendix out. I've had various other little things that might have, you know, complicated the issue and been part of that that um, initial prediction. I'm not mm. sure. Right, that makes sense. Um, where are things headed in the future in terms of uh, fertility astrology? Uh, what sort of research is coming up? What what sort of things? If you had like unlimited time and unlimited research 
potential or you know, clients or what have you would you like to see or like to take it in the future in terms of either your own private work or in terms of where you could see things going with this decades into the future? Gosh. Um, so, yeah, well, let's just start with Pluto going into Aquarius. So Aquarius being the sort of of the Anima Mundi, the 11th house, which is the house of... Yeah, I was going to say, as an Aquarius rising, let's not, not go there, but <laughs> go ahead. Uh, it's it's the 11th house of the Anima Mundi, and this is kind of my partner's children. So it's, I wonder, we, I, I, I strongly believe that, that we are going to head into like another Roe versus Wade forevermore scenario where we are talking about the viability of of life itself when life begins the rights of a fetus the rights of this so just like the the um just the environment is going to be more about yeah um fertility rights is basically and reproductive rights i think we're going into and it's going to be i don't think less legislation i think it's going to be more legislation i'm not sure which way it's going to end up but um Anyway, I see I see that on the horizon, and that means what does that mean for for fertility astrologers? Well, it means that, for instance, there are um, they are now trying to shut down, for instance, surrogacy programs in India, with the idea that women in India are being exploited. And part of the problem I have with that is that those women that is there, they are very often women that have been left by their husbands, so they have absolutely no other means of schooling their children, feeding themselves. And for them, this is not a hardship. This is, this is a, they are consider themselves lucky that they could do this. Um, but the Western first world countries has determined that they are being exploited. So they're shutting down those programs. So if not India, then, then, then where are we going to go? Um, so I think those kinds of legislations about who can do surrogacy, how much it's going to cost, and that's going to come come into play. And that'll make more and more people um, desperate, um, and that'll make more and more people uh, yeah, very vulnerable themselves to scammers and exploitation. Um, I think that we are headed for a period where, I mean, my children are in their 30s now, and their friends, and at least one of my children has said, well, they're not sure about having their own children. And it's because they they see this whole climate change in the world that we've created for them. They're finding it difficult and they're finding it a challenge to provide for themselves and then to provide for, for children. And they take the responsibility of having children quite seriously. So they are looking at it quite seriously. So I suspect that we're going to have a lot of a lot of people who are going to think like that. And then at the very last minute, they're going to come in at 42 and they're going to be phoning me and saying, I thought I didn't want, but now I do. Um, so there's going to be a bit of that. I mean, that's a really interesting thing in terms of people's life narrative, people not wanting children at one stage in their life, but later um, going through some sort of transit or progression or something and, and changing their mind and suddenly, you know, tr wondering if it's too late or if it's still a possibility. Uh, you know, I think I think every every new relationship that 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 one has brings with it like its own sort of uh, uh, blossoming or emerging emerging thing that we do together. So I think what happens is that, especially with this, this generation of thirty year olds, they have had the. Uh, it's been very puzzling to me, basically, because old as I am, I think I've had more sex than them. They go to festivals, they hook up, but they don't form relationships. They they're very um, abstemious. They're quite um, discerning, and they, 
they rather operate on quite a shallow uh, level and they communicate on in Instagram. And so as a result, their, their relationships are very, for me at least, and this is, like I said, a mother talking a little bit distorted in a way and not really um, building a future together. So there's lots of options. So there's lots of browsing and scrolling of options, but no sort of like we, we, we're in this together. So I see that until that happens, somebody you know when you love somebody and when you are your life you've decided to merge your life story uh, for, for some people i'm not saying for everybody for some people there, there is this um it's that ultimate act of recreating oneself or recreating something jointly um which you know is is all-encompassing and it's it's how can i say it? it's it's very seductive that idea of having a baby is very seductive and i think that when people are in that space, that's when it's going to happen. But it'll be delayed. So I'm I'm looking at at, at these thirty year olds, and I'm going, yeah, they will wake up and they will find themselves in a, finally in a relationship. But while they're all so young and beautiful and just hooking up and you know being, um, how can I say, non-committal, I, I I see them well able to deny children because their lives their lifestyle doesn't hold space for their children. Mm. Yeah, and you and you mentioned sometimes being in certain relationships where that's not the case, but then all of a sudden sometimes being in others where suddenly there's a, a desire to have that, and that's such an interesting concept that we've you've mentioned a few times during the course of our discussion, which is just different relationships having different synastry and like people's planets falling in different parts of your chart and activating different parts of the chart that maybe a, a different relationship you know didn't activate. Yeah, I think that's. Um... I mean, I know several several relationships where even just the introduction of a pet dog, for instance, has changed things, changes the dynamic completely. Mm. Um, it somehow allows people to express themselves more vulnerably or more more openly with a dog than they do sometimes in their relationship. So it's um, th that kind of feeling might might make people have more confidence. For instance, a lot of people talk about, well, let's get a dog first, then we'll decide if we can have children. That's very common. Um, I'm not against it. It's just like, oh my gosh! But when you have children, you, that dog's going to be a burden because <laughs> you're not going to have time for walking the dog and the children. But it's you know, if the dog opens up the 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 relationship space for you to consider th that kind of sacrifice, well, then it's a good thing um, because sometimes people aren't able to uh, imagine. You know, there's also like a, a phenomena which I, I find common. So I know I wax lyrical about the moon Saturn, but it is the most common signature for for infertility. Sometimes people feel that there's not enough love in their relationship, that they're not going to have enough love for their partner and and another. So they feel that, love, that the love that they have to give is finite and they, they can't imagine that they are able to, to incorporate it. And it's very hard to, to, to tell people um, from my side of the table where I've had two children, it's very hard to convince them that actually love is infinite. It's, like, it's unbelievable how you can have this baby and love everybody 150% even more, even, even when it's really bad and times are really tough. Is you never ever you don't know until you're there about the capacity that you have for that love, but people are so scared and anxious that they won't have enough love. So it's it's just an uh, it's a just an interesting dichotomy that sometimes you have to just take the leap of faith and just do it anyway. Mm, right. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. You've had a chance to see so many different signatures with different couples and have greater insight about where they're coming from with some of the signatures like that and some of the things that they maybe struggle with 
not just physically, but sometimes psychologically or emotionally, and in terms of carrying certain um, family dynamics as well? Yeah, so one of the, the things that I always say to people, especially women who who, who want to have m multiple rounds of IVF or they're just starting the journey with IVF, you look at the husband's chart and the husband has got in Sagittarius, he's got, you know, mass square Uranus or and and you, and you just go, or oh, the sun square Uranus, moon square Uranus, he's got he's got this deep, deep seated um desire for physical independence. And so you, you, uh, what I normally advise those women is I normally say, listen, so long as you can convince your partner that he can be a bachelor for the rest of his life, he'll be paying for these IVFs. But the minute you start saying things, because, you know, women can be very funny. The minute they start trying to have IVF, they're going to say, well, honey, you better get used to this because when the baby comes, you're going to have to do 50%. And, and they start curating a man's time. And people with anything you're in a square, any luminary or, you know, or Mars, they don't like that. And that's when they want to check out. So when the first IVF doesn't work, they close shop and they say, you see, it didn't work. We're not trying again. But if, and I say to a woman, just tell them that they can be a bachelor forever. You can nail them once the baby's born, but just we're here to get you pregnant. But you're not going to get pregnant if you're going to keep curating your partner's time before the baby's even here. Um, and also once the baby's here, the partner actually forgets about their independence momentarily because they've got this whole new thing that's going on in their lives that's new and interesting and has given them you know broadened their horizon so it's, it's it's a different game anyway but um it is interesting how yeah there's a people have ideas about what kind of parents they're going to be and whether they can cope and whether they can't and yeah right and then in, in the process of having children sometimes changing you or, or people becoming different pers different people than they expected maybe going into it yeah there's there's a there's a um there's a lot okay so there's a lot about women with the 10th house luminaries that want to go back to work straight away and their partners are surprised and and hurt because they think that they must now turn into these wonderful mothers that just want to stay at home and bake cookies all day long mm. and so I, I always say to them have the conversation up front where you actually organize a childcare sooner rather than later because you are going to want to be back at work and it's not a it's not a, an indictment on the kind of mother that you are but people need to understand that there are different kinds of mothers and it's okay um there's that and there's also um, a typical thing is also men with um, Pluto opposite um, Venus. It's there's a often there's a very compelling intimate um, sexual relationship with a partner, and men suddenly feel like okay now here's the baby coming along and it's interfering. It's already interfering. Sex is also not quite what it was because she's heavily pregnant and this is another baby's going to be screaming and crying and and breastfeeding and I'm going to feel excluded and I'm going to feel like I don't have that sexual connection and for some people that sexual connection is the very expression of who they are could be heavy Scorpios where that's just what they need and so it's really useful sometimes to say to the wife you know you are actually going to have to make date time for your guy you actually going to have to make a real effort to to um, be that person that you were before and it's not all on you but it's kind of like you need to understand that this is the thing that actually makes him feel like he can cope with life and not just be not just dismiss it and say it's just something he needs to get used to so and it's about talking talking that through especially uh, I, I think men struggle especially if the boy if the child is a boy and there's you know feeding going on and there's denial of sex because of you know hell just had a baby it could feel like your relationship has changed forever and not in a good way. Hmm. Okay. Um, 
And and there's one last thing I wanted to mention that came up in the book that I thought was a really interesting point. But you said something, broadly speaking, uh, about trying to understand one's destiny as a means of trying to control it. And it was kind of like an observation about astrology and divination, I think, in history a little bit, but but relevant in terms of understanding a person's life narrative and how much you can exert some control or try to push things in a direction that is more close to what you want to achieve uh, in terms of your ideal future. Was this Is this a question directly related to fertility astrology or just in general? Um, I mean, I guess we can situate it in the context of fertility astrology, but it was just a really interesting point for me in general or like an observation that I, it's not that I had never thought about, but the way that you phrased it somehow about that part of the purpose for many people of trying to understand your destiny through let's say astrology is that people want to be able to influence it in some way rather than just experiencing it purely passively okay i think you're discovering my inner stoic actually my inner stoic is not so inner <laughs> so yeah so i'm being a capricorn i'm extremely practical and stoic so but i'm also always looking for ways in which to you know, I think if you give somebody something to do, or if you give somebody a task to think on or meditate on, they they kind of um, they take it away with them, and it's something for them to fall back on as just like a, a talisman to to fiddle with or, or to think about, so that they, it distracts them from the the IVF that they're going through or whatever it is. So when somebody's going through like a really hard, I mean, I'm just trying to think in my own chart and. I, I know exactly what I'm, I was referring to there. In my own chart, I was having, so I've got Moon Saturn opposite Pluto Uranus on the seventh house cusp. And I think, I don't know, somewhere in the, in the 2000s, 2006 maybe, we had a transit of Saturn was, Saturn was in Virgo on the Uranus and Pluto, and it was opposed to Uranus on my Moon Saturn. Yeah, that your Saturn went into Virgo in 2007. Yeah. So so we had that as a transit. So when you've already been divorced once and you see that one coming up, you're going, okay, don't feel like doing this all again, do we? So the point is to look at that and go, yeah, this could be scary, but let's see what I can do with this. Let's see how, how, how I can manage this. And so what I decided to do was, firstly, there was an opportunity for my husband and I to decide to immigrate to England. So I thought, okay. Uranus coming over my ascendant is asking me to physically separate. So I'm going to do this, but I'm going to be in control of it. So I said to my husband, we are going to physically separate. We can even financially separate. I'm going to go to England. We can, uh, we'll continue to be married, but this is the way that I'm going to, to, to do this, this transit. And especially only because Saturn was also in the seventh house. So if, if it had just been Uranus, I might not have been pushed there. But the fact that there was a Saturn-Uranus opposition, which was the, the reverse in my chart, I went, no, no, that, that pushed me. So I said, this is what we're going to do. And he said, okay, fine. He said, I, I, I can see this and, and, and this will work. So I immigrated to England and we started a period of eight years where we lived apart on two different continents. And it was a six weeks off, two weeks on marriage for eight years. And we're still married. We've been married now for 24 years. And I firmly believe that had we not done that, things might have conspired differently and I might have just lost my temper because let's face it, I've got Uranus Pluto on the seventh house cusp. God knows what I could have done. I could have just bolted, had a tantrum. But I was distracted now with a move, distracted with immigrating to another country and 
because we had done the thing and we had separated, I believe, and maybe that's also part of the process, isn't it? Is I believe that this was the best manifestation of, of my chart at the time. And so nothing nothing further happened. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, it reminds me just of some of the old propitiation rituals and things in ancient astrology where they almost there was all, almost always this core underlying theoretical assumption that the astrological placement or the transit has to manifest somehow. And sometimes the best thing you can do is to try to um, man do something in your life that would be symbolically appropriate that would also represent that and that will kind of like soak up that um, transit or, or what have you symbolically. And in doing so, you do gain some control over it instead of just completely having some external manifestation that's sort of like pushed on you. I agree. And actually, there's a very, um, so, so there is a, not a trick, but it's something that I tell people, I'm finding a lot of um, youngsters now coming up with a, with a Saturn-Neptune opposition. Mm. And um, Saturn-Neptune opposition natally must be quite tough for those people because there's a lot of things, a material things that they find difficult to manifest, literally, because of, of, of that, that opposition. And so what I um, often have advised people to do while they're trying to get pregnant, and particularly if this is across the fifth house or involves the ruler of the fifth house or, or, or the omnipotent pregnancy, what I try and tell them to do is take up photography, but old school photography, because mm. what you're trying to do is you're trying to capture a moment that is very Neptunian and ephemeral, and you're then going to use Neptunian chemicals and alcohol in order to develop the photographs, but you're manifesting a photograph. And I'm hoping that that process is just going to soak up that aspect of your chart and not affect your fertility. So that's kind of the, the, the art. So I'm, I'm constantly looking at ways of finding activities or things that my clients can do that will, I don't know, enhance the, the potential for that to be a way to unlock it. I love that. And that really takes things back to very ancient, ancient like Mesopotamian astrology and just bringing things that they were doing back then into modern times and doing a variation of that today. Um, so that really sort of brings things full full circle here. Um, this is this is great. Thank you for joining me for this interview today. Uh, thank you. Where, what's your website and where can people find out more information about you? So I've got a website which is www.fertilityastrology.com. I have an app which is called Fertility Astrology on Apple and iOS and on Android. And um, I have a YouTube channel and yeah, my books on Amazon. Awesome. And the book is titled Fertility Astrology, a modern medieval textbook. Yeah. So I'll put a link to your website in the description below this video on YouTube, as well as on the podcast website on the astrologypodcast.com. So thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, and Mimi Stargazer. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, 
or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. And finally, special thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, and the AstroGold Astrology app, which is available for iPhone and Android. You can find out more information about that at astrogold.io.